On this glorious morning, will you please stand as you're able for the reading of the day's scripture. Today's reading comes from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Hear these words. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your flesh and a refreshment to your body. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Mike, for reading our lesson this morning. And aren't you glad you're in worship this morning for this choir? Isn't that amazing? Uh, we're so grateful. Um, Dr. Hillman, thank you so much for uh, leading us today and all of our students who are here. We welcome you. I wish you could hear our youth choir too. They usually sing at this choir, at this service at 815 and they're a marvelous uh, youth choir. But uh, thank you for being such a blessing to us today. Uh, it's evident uh, by the way that you sing that you believe the text that you're singing about. And that always comes through. And so we're grateful for the affirmation that we have experienced of God's goodness through the gift that God has given to you. It is a marvelous, marvelous day. I said before we came in that, that worship is, is really the sanity of our world, isn't it? I, I think in the context of worship that I feel more sane than any other time in a rather insane world. I was thinking this morning as we're still in this back-to-school mode, of the boy, the young boy that approached his father and said, Dad, why does the wind blow? His dad said, Son, I'm sorry, I have no idea. He said, Well, Dad, uh, why, where do the clouds come from? His dad said, Son, I, I don't have a clue. He said, Dad, what makes the rainbow? His dad said, Son, I'm, I'm sorry, I have no idea. He said, Dad, do you mind me asking you all these questions? Dad said, Not at all, son. How else can you learn? Well, there are some questions that are difficult to answer, yes? In fact, being a person of faith doesn't necessarily give us all the answers, but we know the questions sometimes. It's fascinating to me how in the Gospels, Jesus seldom gives us fill-in-the-blank answers for life, but he asks 300 questions if you read the Gospels. And quite often when he's asked a question, he rephrases that question, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because he knows we know more than we pretend sometimes to know. We've, we started last week, we're continuing our series on the Proverbs in this series that we're choosing to call Wise Up. I was torn between that theme, wise up and get smart, but I decided to go with wise up. There are three books in the Old Testament that comprise a subsection of the Hebrew canon that we call wisdom literature. Three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And this is our curriculum as we begin this new school year over the next 10 months we're going to look at each of these three texts. 
because I believe in what we call this the age of information, while there is a surplus of data and knowledge, we seem to have a shortage of wisdom. The word wisdom in the Hebrew we mentioned last week, hakma, which means skill or discretion, prudence, also means discernment and understanding. I think of the Proverbs as being compressed truth, usually between eight and 14 words, compressed truth that have centuries of wisdom behind them. I sometimes refer to them as literary fossils or nutshells of knowledge, all of which are attributed to King Solomon, who was the son of David and Bathsheba, you remember, the third and final king of the United Kingdom of Israel who ruled for 40 years. Between 970 and 931 B.C., his name, Solomon, means peace, but we typically think of it as a synonym for wisdom, rightly so. Every culture, every nation, every civilization In fact, every generation has these kernels of truth. In fact, you may remember from your history, your U.S. history, Poor Richard's Almanac, you remember that? That is attributed, this pamphlet, this periodical that ran for 26 years between 1732 and 1758, had the wisdom, these witticisms, these maxims of a wise man whose name was Benjamin Franklin. In fact, some of these proverbs are still a part of the American vernacular. I'll give you a for instance. Here's the top ten. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Almanac. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. Here's one you may not remember. He that lies with dogs will rise with fleas. I love this one, he that goes a-borrowing goes a-sorrowing. A A lot of truth to that. God helps those who help themselves. It's not in the Bible, it's Ben Franklin. A spoonful of honey will catch more flies than a gallon of vinegar. We could use a dose of that, couldn't we? Haste makes well done is better than well said. And my personal favorite, When in doubt, don't. (laughs) This is probably your personal favorite. A good example is the best sermon. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not so fast. We all have them, don't we? These proverbs, you all have them, every generation. But what separates, what distinguishes Solomonic, godly wisdom, from native intelligence, we said last week is chapter 1, verse 7, Proverbs. This is the key to the whole anthology. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we said last week that that word fear, Hebrew, yirah, means not terror. It's not that you're scared to death of God. It means reverence for God. It means esteem. It means devotion. And so right from the get-go, the whole motto for the book says that the starting point of wisdom 
is reverence for God. I think you could change that. The antithesis is also true, that the origin of foolishness is irreverence, disrespect. Isn't it true that when we diss God, it's not long before we diss creation, and it's not long before we hold contempt for those who are made in the image of the Creator? Wisdom begins with reverence for God, and foolishness begins with irreverence for God. But this morning, I want to turn very briefly to what I think may be, Mike, you read it, I think this is the best-known, most oft-quoted proverb in the whole batch. And if you look closely, I believe that it teaches us something about the inner spirit of wisdom, what it looks like. Let's read it together. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. The heart of wisdom looks like trust. The word in the original Hebrew means to rely on. It means to put confidence in. It means to rest secure on. I don't know if you noticed it, but when Dr. Hillman was directing this fine choir, they were, they were relying completely on the fact that he knew when to bring them in with the downbeat. And he didn't disappoint, did he? You can tell a fine choir by the way that they respond to their conductor. They rely on your leadership. It reminds me of John Patton. John Patton, the great Scottish missionary of the 19th century, was translating the Bible for a South Sea Island tribe when he discovered that they had no word in their dialect for trust no word for trust. One day, a native who had been running a great distance to Patton's home flopped down inside the home in a big chair and said in his native tongue, it's good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And when Patton heard those words, he was able to finish his translation. Trust means resting your whole weight on God, and that's the inner spirit of wisdom. Anybody remember a name, Bill Withers, singer-songwriter, Bill Withers? Ain't no sunshine, remember that? Just the two of us, you remember that? He wrote a song in 1972, I remember I was 12 years old when it came out, called Lean On Me. I love that song. In fact, they made a movie out of it. But what you may not know is the inspiration for that song. The inspiration behind the lyric was Bill Withers' upbringing in the little coal mining town of Beckley, West Virginia. Actually, he was born in Slab Fork, West Virginia. Have you ever heard of Slab Fork? I think it's a suburb of Beckley, if there is such a thing. Bill, the youngest of six kids, his dad died when he was 13. He lived in a decrepit old house in a poor neighborhood after high school at 18, enlisted in the Navy and later moved to LA with $250 in his pocket. And he developed a terrible case of homesickness. 
As he remembered the faith of his mother and family and church, he sat down at a keyboard and he wrote these words, lean on me when you're not strong. And I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on for it won't be long till I'm going to need somebody to lean on. That's wisdom. Wisdom knows where to lean and who to lean on. It's about trust. That verse goes on, trust in the Lord with all your, what, heart. It's interesting to me to know that in the Hebrew language, the word for heart and the word for mind is the same word. It means the inner person, the inner man, the inner woman. It means your heart, your mind, your soul, your will. It all goes together. It's the same word. There is no division between heart and mind, though in our Western way of thinking, we think there is. Like when you say, my heart says yes, but my mind says no, that would not compute with a Jewish mindset, a Jewish way of thinking. We think of the heart as the center of emotion, feeling, and the mind as the center of reason or thinking, but not so in a Middle Eastern perspective. The heart is the wellspring of action. This is why Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, so that by the way that you speak and what you say reveals, whether we want it to or not, something about the condition of our heart and mind. Blessed are the pure in heart, said Jesus, for they will see God. 1 Samuel 16, 7, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It was Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And the Proverbs writer in chapter 4, verse 3 says, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows the springs of life. Wisdom begins with reverence, and reverence looks like leaning trusting, putting your whole weight on God. Then there's another piece, there's another clause to this verse. Solomon then goes on to distinguish, to differentiate between godly trust and self-reliance. I want you to notice in the second half of verse 5, after trust in the Lord with all your heart, this is very important, and lean not on your own understanding. In other words, what he's saying is don't depend only on your point of view, on your perspective. Chapter 3, verse 7 that Mike also read says, don't be wise in your own eyes. You know anybody like that? We call them wise guys, not because of their wisdom, but because they think they're wise. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says, don't assume that you know it all. Reminds me of John Wooden. You remember the great basketball coach at UCLA who said, and I quote, it's, not, it's what you know after you know it all that matters. That's what matters. Now, I want to confess to you, this is usually where I blow it. 
and maybe you too, but especially me, we, we put too much emphasis on my opinion, on my viewpoint, and for sure some perspectives are better than others, especially mine. And then you read in Proverbs 18, verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing personal opinion. I think the antithesis of godly trust is self-reliance. I think that's it. Now and then I'll hear someone say something like this, I'm a self-made man, woman. And of course, there's no such thing. I, I think we do badly enough when two people make us. I, I've never met a self-made person. Self-serving, yes, <laughs> but not self-made. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in bookstores and Amazon and wherever you order your books, over the last 30, 40 years, there's been a genre of literature that has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry. It's called self-help. And there's a place for that. Volumes upon volumes upon volumes. Self-improvement, self-fulfillment, self-empowerment, self-aggrandizement. And when I see that, I think to myself, that's helpful, but it's a little bit like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic it's going to spruce things up a little, but it's not going to fix the hole in the boat. <laughs> because we need more than self-help. In fact, self is what got me into this mess that we call sin. I don't know about you, but I need more than me. I need more than self-help. I need divine rescue. <laughs> Lean not on your own understanding. Well, we live in a hyper-individualistic society where we preach self-reliance and we wonder why so much irreverence and hostility. That's what all the fuss was about in, garden, in the Garden of Eden, self-reliance. When I begin to think that I'm wiser than God, when you begin to trust the creature over the creator, there are problems right here in Music City. Thomas Sowell, Hoover Institute said, and I quote, some of the biggest cases of mistaken identity are among, among intellectuals who have trouble remembering that they are not God. And not just intellectuals, clergy, and a few lay people. Bishop Pennell, who's here this morning, used to say of a former bishop of ours, a good friend of ours in North Georgia, he is often wrong but never in doubt. And when he said that, it occurs to me that one of the biggest issues that we face sometimes in leadership, spiritual or political leadership, is the inability or the unwillingness to be self-critical. And some of you have helped me with that. The inability sometimes to say, I don't know, or I could be wrong. That last phrase has kept me married for 34 years. <laughs> but it's hard to say, isn't it? Ron Heifetz, you know the name, 
who's written this amazing book called The Practice of Adaptive Leadership, says, and I quote, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said that the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. And then he says this, in the realm of adaptive leadership, which I think is a secular word for discernment, in the realm of adaptive leadership, you have to believe that your intervention is absolutely the right thing to do at the moment you commit to it, but at the same time, you need to remain open to the possibility that you may be dead wrong. All of that, for me, comes out of lean not on your own opinion. Now, please don't understand me. There is a place for self-reliance, right? I'm all for us pulling our own weight. In fact, my daughter, Haley, turned 26 last Sunday, August the 11th, and that was good news to our insurance. (laughs) In fact, I was so happy about her turning 26, I bought myself a cake. I'm all for pulling our own weight. I'm all for self-help to a degree, but we need more than that. Paul, using Jesus as our model, says in Philippians 2 that the key to a life of wisdom is not self-fulfillment. It's (laughs) self-emptying. Have this mind, heart in you, he says, that was also in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death on a cross. This is what Jesus meant when he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever will lose their life for me, she will save it. Self-emptying. Lean not. This is what John the Baptist meant when he baptized the Lord in the Jordan, and then he said, I I must decrease while he increases that Solomonic wisdom. And it begins with reverence, and it includes trust in Christ and death to self. But there's a paradox here. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. There's a paradox here. The more dependent you are on God, the more independent you become of the world. And that's a paradox. Haven't you noticed sometimes that the saintliest person, the most God-dependent person, is often the most independent of external control and coercion? And it's not that they're indifferent to the world. It's not that they're apathetic. To the contrary, they care deeply about the transformation of the world, but they are not regulated by the world. They're in it, but they're not of it because they know where to lean and who to lean on. And they actually become interdependent in harmony and shalom with God and neighbor. There's one other word I want to mention in closing, and it's verse 6. 
in all your ways acknowledge, another word is submit to God, and he will make straight or he will direct your path. What does that mean? Well, I don't have to tell you, it doesn't mean that the path will be easy. (laughs) There's a cross involved. It doesn't mean that the path you take will be uneventful or won't have any obstacles or potholes or detours. But the word to make straight, yashar, means level or just, righteous, and even sometimes smooth. I give you one example and I'm finished. A few weeks ago in July, my son and I went hiking. We said to both our children, we'll give you one day, whatever you want to do. Haley wanted us to help her move. I was sorry I asked. (laughs) Andrew wanted to go hiking. So we went up to Highlands, North Carolina, some of you have been there, to a trail called the Chinkapin Trail. Uh, it, It was what I would call a total body workout. It was mostly uphill, it's a five mile trip, that promised a view at the end of the trail that was worth your sore muscles. We went early, nobody was there. We had the path to ourselves. And at one point, after we'd been on the path a while, we took a fork in the path that we were not sure was the right way. And the farther we went, the more covered in growth was the path. And we could still make it out, but it became less and less and less visible. And then we became concerned about stepping on things that we couldn't see. Our fears were validated when we had a near miss with a snake. It was non-poisonous. It was a good snake. I know what you're thinking. The only good snake is a dead snake, Proverbs 12, 7. (laughs) It should be in there. But we moved on in faith and hope. We left love at the fork. And we were just about to turn around and go back. It was too difficult. When suddenly, up ahead, we saw blue. We saw the sky. We saw a clearing. And the path unfolded before us. We caught sight of a rock, which became our perch. And this is the picture where our hopes were fulfilled. A view of beauty on a clear day that was worth the trip. We talked about it as we came down that just because the path was narrow and few had traveled, it didn't mean it didn't go somewhere. It did. And to think we almost missed it. But wisdom kept us on track. The end of the trail, I have to tell you, was worth the bugs It was worth the ticks, it was worth the briars, it was worth the pricklies, it was worth the steep terrain, and even the snake. In fact, looking back, we talked about the fact that it was a pretty smooth trip, and we did it together. No one who puts his hand to the plow and turns back is fit. 
for the kingdom, said Jesus. Enter the narrow gate, he said, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many get off the path. (laughs) But in all your trails, acknowledge him, and he has a way of making the mountain low and the crooked level and the rough places plain. The key to wising up in a world that is dumbing down is trust. Just knowing where to lean and who to lean on, and he'll keep you on track. After all, he is the path. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and on him we can rely. And just the thought of that is healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. In Jesus' name.